to remember that human beings are selfish at our core. <laughs> when we're trying to solve a problem, we want you to solve our problem. We don't want to hear about the ways you're going to do it so much as we just want to know that you're going to do it. Compared to the lifestyle that our hero was leading, the drug dealer had a way better like situation going on. <laughs> harassment. I'm being stalked online, on my phone, and through the mail by these people. <laughs> Today on The Engaging Marketeer, I am speaking with Danica Stahoski, who has come from Portland in the US to live in Newcastle in England. And Danica uh, is a copywriter who helps businesses get to the core of what it is their target clients and customers are looking for so that the copy on their websites and in their marketing materials can be aimed directly at them. But Danica has also worked very heavily in helping Russians learn English in the US. So I'm speaking with Danica about what she's done, why she's done it, and how she helps businesses get to the core of what their customers' values are. To, to, to start off, I was just looking at your, your About Us page on your, your website. Yeah. Where you... <laughs> You talk about wanting to be the bad guy in, in Miami Vice with, with a pool and exotic pets. Oh, it, it was not necessarily the, as a child, it was not necessarily like what the day in, day out looked like. It was that like compared to the lifestyle that our hero was leading, the drug dealer had a way better like situation going on. Mm. Supermodels, white furniture, tigers, pools. Yes, there was a mountain of cocaine and probably a whole lot of violence that I didn't really pick up on. But all I did was walk into the room and say, oh, I want white tigers. Cool. <laughs> Do I have those things? No. <laughs> not, not yet. But, not yet. No, not yet. But, you know, a part of, uh, you know, everybody's journey through life is that life is never what they expect it to be. Other kids wanted to be firefighters and they ended up being accountants. I wanted to be a drug dealer ended up being a copywriter. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, it's kind of the idea that, you know, I didn't, I didn't become a copywriter right out of university. Um, and it wasn't really until I had had some experience um, in banking and working with small business owners um, and working with a school and working with a lot of nonprofits that I realized that there's a lot of usability and copy issues that don't get resolved until a program either fails or um, a person picks up a phone and calls, which if you've got good copy, they should never have to do. Mm. Um, so, so that was really kind of the idea behind my about us is being like, we don't all know what we're going to be, <laughs> but we all have goals. And I still do like a house in Spain with a swimming pool and, you know, an exotic pet, maybe more like, you know, an iguana than yeah. a tiger. Now. Or parrots, maybe. Yeah. 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 That seems more doable for me right now. Yeah. My kid would love a white tiger. <laughs> I, I'm not so much into that. <laughs> well, you never know. Siegfried and Roy, they had white tigers. And didn't one of them eat him? Yeah, he got mauled. Yeah. Yeah. But... Yeah. So white tigers are out. <laughs> So I, I presume when when you say you, when you went to university, you didn't know what you wanted to do. I presume you didn't go to university to be a drug dealer. No, no. I went to university um, and I, I had passed my drug dealer stage hmm. when I was eight. You're like I realized it was that. unattainable. 
because that's when you know you kind of like oh Miami Vice is a really terrible TV show so like following any advice you get from Miami Vice is probably a bad idea um so I went to a university for theater and I thought I wanted to be an actor which it turns out I, I didn't really like that as much as I liked being on the producing end um and being on the analysis end so I really loved directing, production management, um, script analysis, dramaturgy, which is um, where you study a script to give the actors background. So like if you're doing something like, um, let's say Much Ado About Nothing, and you're staging it in 1948, you need to give them the figures ground to stand on. So you have to give them a history of what was going on in Shakespeare's time when this play was written. So you understand why he wrote it and how he wrote it. What were the political implications of writing this? Were there any? Um, and then also, if you're putting it in 1948, what were the political implications of the place that you're setting it in? Because if you're setting it in 1948 in Tonga versus 1948 in like Croatia, there's gonna be a very big difference in how you interpret the text. So that was really interesting to me. And then figuring out how to put everything together so that the audience had a seamless experience and just bought right into everything mm. like that's really that was really where I excelled acting schmacting <laughs> um <laughs> it's the production piece that's the important part um so yeah that's that's what I went to university for and then of course I got a job in banking which totally makes sense it makes perfect sense perfect sense right? yeah actors right? banking yeah yeah right in right in <laughs> if, if you can act as a banker you can act as anything so so did, did did you did you leave the um well the the, the acting or, or or the script work behind to for, just pursue your dream in banking? No, no. In fact, um, my dream that was solved by going into banking was that I was able to move out of my mother's basement. Um, <laughs> so, but I kept on doing theater um, for another decade with a um, really small theater arts um, company that was really focused on not doing theater that we necessarily thought people wanted to see, but theater that we really wanted to do. And because we had zero budget, we had no board, we had no financial responsibility to do anything that we didn't want to do. So we got away with a lot of really weird theater. Um, and it was really great and it was really fun. And then I got pregnant and it was like, oh, I can't really be, when you're in production, it can feel very and management it can feel very much especially with theater artists you can feel very much like you're a parent to them like you have to get them to learn their lines and show up to rehearsal on time and oh my gosh wash your costume and all the other things um and being grown people's mother didn't really work when i had an actual real little person that needed a mom so um when my daughter came around i kind of had to put theater off to the side um, and focus on, um, you know, providing <laughs> for my small little family, um, which is when banking really became the thing that saved me and small business and learning about small businesses and helping them navigate the world of banking um, really became really important because it was how we were surviving, really. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So, and then... Um, and then we moved here and then we moved to the UK. I didn't have to do banking anymore because, because we moved and got a job, I think it was in recruitment and um, then COVID hit 
and I got P45s, which is fine. I was the last person in on the first one to go. Um, but I picked back up what I had been doing on the side. So when I left theater, I didn't really leave my desire to create things. Um, so I put my through myself through a web design course, which I enjoyed the idea that I could create something and make something out of something that wasn't didn't exist before, which was really interesting to me. But Ruby, like, killed me. <laughs> Ruby killed me. And I, I made a Ruby site. It was terrible. <laughs> I still get notes from Heroku telling me that, like, my my code is corrupt. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm never logging back into that. <laughs> yeah, um, if you're going to pick up web design, Ruby's not really the... Uh... The simple language to start with. Well, we did. It was HTML and CSS. Okay. Started there. And then it was like, we're just going to sprinkle some Ruby in here so you can get. And I was like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> this is so bad. But I finished. And I got it done. And it, the site, the, the test site functioned the way that it needed to for the assignment. But I knew that, that moving things a, a pica at a time over to get it all to line up that really wasn't in my wheelhouse perfection um is not something that i believe in so it's very <laughs> difficult to <laughs> be a designer and not believe in perfection like that's the whole point of design so but what i did learn is that i really like the idea of the usability piece and working with people to get them to interact with the interface so um in between the website stuff and um, taking you a, a formal UX course, um, I stumbled upon this problem with my kids' language program. So um, the problem with the language program is that um, one, it was it was designed to bring Russian um, students who were from um, a refugee population. To, designed to help them learn English so that they were up to speed and ready to go by the time they hit um, what you guys would call secondary school. So middle school for us, secondary for them. Um, and uh, the problem was is that the enrollment wasn't keeping up with where the district um, needed it to be. So where the, um, I guess the, the, the city council needed it to be. Um, and they're thinking about shutting the program down. Now I had just enrolled my kid in this program. <laughs> it's like, no, there has to be something we can do. Um, the program had existed um, for almost a decade before we got in. Um, and the, po the population it was serving was, again, it was, um, there were Russian refugees that it had been um, removed from Russia right before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, and the reason was their religious conviction. The Russian government at that time, or the USSR, wanted to be the religion. They couldn't have anybody else believing anything else but in the USSR. Mm. So the United States said, we'll take them, and they ended up in Portland. Um, the problem was is that because of two things, because of their religious exclusivity, they only wanted to practice with each other, um, and they only spoke their own language, um, it made integration very difficult for them and for their families because they didn't feel accepted, but they didn't want to accept 
anything else because they were refugees. They just wanted to go home. Like they don't want to adopt Western values. They don't want to adopt any of this. They just want to go home. Um, but they couldn't. So they raise their children and their children are locked in a language barrier because they only shop at Russian stores. They only go to Russian church. And then when they enroll them in school, their children suffer because they don't speak the language. Um, so this program was designed to help them. Um, and by the time 10 years had passed, mixed in that group had been some immigration as well. So immigrants had come in and mixed in with them. And the difference between a refugee population and an immigrant population is huge. The outlook on life is huge. How they perceive the world is different. Um, and uh, so there were some immigrant um, Russians mixed in, but they their ability to integrate was easier because they wanted to be here. <coughs> and that's where the program kind of fell apart. Mm. Um, uh, there, the enrollment wasn't high enough in order to justify keeping the program. So it started off with two kindergartens and they were supposed to be at least like 60% Russian speaking and 40% English speaking. Cause the idea is you put them in with English speaking kids and they will gradually learn the language just through absorption. Um, and it worked great because they'd start off, all the English kids would show up at kindergarten on the first day and the Russian kindergarten teacher would start um, the day and 90% of the day was in Russian. And little kindergarten English speaking kids were just like, wait, what? I understand <laughs> nothing. What is going on? But the Russian kids, it's the one place in the world outside of their home and their church where someone understands them. And that breaks down barriers. And then gradually through the years, the idea is that it starts at 90% Russian, 10% English, and it decreases by 10% for every year that they're enrolled. So the next year it's 80% Russian and 20% English until you get to the fifth year in the program and then it's 50-50. Um, so that's the idea behind the program, um, but not enough families were enrolling um, because uh, it was either too far for them to travel or they didn't um, know about the program. And the Russian families that were um, immigrant families, this was really interesting, the Russian immigrant families were kind of like, oh, well, that happens. We'll move on to the next thing. They had adopted a very American way of dealing with some stuff. And they were just like, well, I don't know the refugee families were heartbroken. Like this was their doorway for their children to try to just crack the code a little bit and get in. Um, and so instead of going to the district with how can we make this better, they came to the district with the attitude of this isn't right. You're persecuting us because we're Russian. You give all this funding to all of the other language schools, which is not true. You help all the other language schools, which is not true. And you're doing all of this for them. You're picking on us because we're Russian. So <laughs> I entered into all of this with my can-do American spirit. Let's go fix this program. So I held a big open session for, this, for all the families to come and just air their grievances, get it out of the way, and then let's get a plan together on how we're going to tackle this issue. How are we going to save this program? And no one showed up. 
Oh. Not a single person showed up. It was heartbreaking. So, uh, but I knew that they needed help. Um, and the teacher, I, so I, I, you know, picked up all my cookies and all my big, you know, sheets for brainstorming and all of that stuff, threw it out the window. Um, and I went to the teachers and I said, what did I do wrong here? <laughs> because you know more than I do. And they're like, you're too optimistic. Um, you're too American because you're not one of them. Um, and so you need to approach this differently or you're never going to make it. you like, it just won't work. And I was like, okay, what can I do? And they're like, well, first of all, go through us if you want to talk to the, to the parents because they're not going to listen to you. <laughs> You're some crazy American lady. They're not going to listen to you. Um, so I said, okay, agreed. Um, but I was able to, through them, get a hold of several moms who were Russian speaking and several moms who um, were uh, Americans who had enrolled their students just like I had. Um, and I just talked to them about what their enrollment process was. And for the Americans, it was very easy because we knew that there were language immersion programs available to us. We knew how to navigate a website. We knew exactly what to do, where to click, and, and how, to, how to navigate the whole thing. It was very easy for us white middle-class ladies to figure this out. For the Russian families, they heard about the program through their churches. Um, their delivery mechanism was very different. They heard about it from friends and family. They heard about it through their churches. They did not hear about it through the website um, or through, you know, just mom gossip, all of that stuff. Their mom gossip was all in Russian. Our mom gossip <laughs> was all middle-class white ladies. Um, so um, the idea was, okay, so we need to tap into the networks that these people already access. So that would be their churches. Um, but also their um, Slavic radio program that goes on, the Slavic exclusive fairs that they have, um, go through the Facebook groups that are um, for Russian speakers and get a hold of all of those people, all of that media and work that angle because then you'll get more Russian families from farther flung to come to the program who aren't necessarily really website savvy. Um, on the other hand, going through the PPS or the Portland Public Schools website to find the Russian immersion program was impossible. In fact, the only language that was listed as a secondary language, even though Portland Public Schools has the largest library of language immersion programs, the only one that was on there for an option was Chinese. There's like six or seven Spanish immersion programs <laughs> in PBS, but they weren't even listed on the website. Yeah. So I took it upon myself to find out how the other language programs were doing, what were their enrollment numbers, what were they doing that was working, what were they doing that was not working, and they were more than happy to share everything with me. Um, so then I came back to the teachers with a plan. Um, and the executable plan was we need a video for the website. We need, and that video needs to just go everywhere. Like it just needs to go on every platform possible. Um, we need to rethink about how, where language programs are placed on the whole thing. So it wasn't just about revamping the Russian immersion program. It was about making dual language immersion a bigger part of the enrollment process for the entire district. 
So bring Vietnamese up as well. Bring everyone, because if, if we just raise the water, all boats will rise. So we just have to make this available to everybody. So it really was a matter of working with Portland Public Schools and working with their usability issues um, and fixing that. Um, and all of a sudden, with the media blitz, with the video that we worked on, we, we went to the local high school and had their film studies group make us an industrial film, which was really great. And the Russian teachers were extremely supportive. They went out and found, there was a Russian composer who lived nearby and they had him compose music for the video. Um, we had all of um, all of the Russian moms and um, English speaking moms. Um, some of them were willing to go on camera and talk about their experience on the video, which was super great. Um, and um, working with Portland Public Schools, they didn't believe that there was a big enough Russian speaking population to save the program. They they're like, it's not in our data. It's 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 just not going to work. And I was like, well, let's just try it. Let's just see what happens. Let's do a media blitz. You don't have to do it. I'll do it. Let's just get the website fixed so that it's usable. Let's get the video out there. Let's get it on. Let's put Russian immersion on like the nav screen for the elementary school that hosts it because it wasn't even there. Like it was just invisible. Um, and so we did the blitz. It took about a year to roll out everything in scheduled fashion. So like we were advertising, you know, four weeks before open house, three weeks, two weeks, one week, releasing press releases at the right time um, and just really, really engaging with how parents enroll and when they enroll their kids and really engaging with that process. And we um, created so much demand for the program that they had to have a wait list. And I was so excited for them because this group of people who felt so persecuted and so left behind, because they've been left behind before by their government. Like, I'm not mm. surprised that that was their reaction to Portland Public Schools saying, we're closing your program, that they were like, how can you take this away from us? And I'm not surprised at all, um, but that we were able to save it. And now it's still going. They've, in fact, I went onto the um, Russian immersion program, um, the website, they, they haven't changed it really at all from the, on the elementary school or the primary school website, but Portland Public Schools, the big programming, um, they've made all of the languages more prominent. They've put them all out. The enrollment, like the kindergarten enrollment process, it used to only be available in English. It's now available. They have a little video and it's available in all of the immersion programs that they offer. Um, I'm, I'm so excited that the dual language program uh, decided that that their all of their languages were worth investing in instead of just Spanish and the Chinese program. Um, so again, it was a matter of raising the water for everyone so that all the boats were floating. Um, the Russian immersion program, since we put in place kind of the, the, the media program, the scheduled dates of X number of weeks before open house, this is what you do and here's the schedule and this is how you roll it out. Um, when we moved, I left it with um, one of the teachers and she has kept it up. She's kept the program the same. Um, she has the same schedule. She just rolls out the same thing every, and they have not been in the same position again. So since the revamp of everything, 
Um, and a lot of it was changing the language of how you talk about language immersion for those Russian families. Like a lot of them were really worried that what it was going to be was just um, a language program that taught their kids um, English and told them to throw away their Russian. Like it, it's a it's a real fear that they had that their um, culture and their language would be stripped from their children and that they would be left with children who only spoke English. So mm -hmm. it, it was really interesting that we were able to change the way people think about things and change the way that people um, used the service to get their kids in. Um, and that's what triggered my interest in usability and copy because it was just so powerful. It, it changed the lives of all these people. Um, and kudos to the, the teachers and the parents who, after they saw what it could do, embraced it all the way. They were like, okay, we're committed to this. We're gonna keep doing this same process over and over and over again. And I think, I wanna say that was in 2016 is when we got the news that there would only be one kindergarten. And by 2017, we had both the kindergartens back and a wait list. And that felt great. Like <laughs> that, that felt amazing. Um, and that's really what started me down this path of usability and copy together. Yeah, it's, it's, it to sounds sounds like what just, sounds like what you what you've done there is is what you talk about with your your copy as well. It it's about identifying who you're actually going to be writing the content for, who the target customer is, and then using what's important to them, what their values are, and the type of language that they use, so that when you're talking about the the Russians sending their kids to the school, they know that they're not going to have their identity stripped. They're not going to yeah. be taken away from who they are. It's important to them. It's, it, is that a similar way to where you work with businesses, that you work out who yeah. their customers are and what their values are and what's important to them? Yeah, definitely. So um, one of my clients that, um, uh, well, she recently, it, it's really great. She's had a, a big transformational um, moment. So we're going to have to redo some of her copy. Um, the she really thought that what her clients loved about her service was that she loved their dogs. So she's a dog walking service that takes the dogs out on adventures um, in a safe way because they're always with trainers. Um, they always have GPS collars on. But she really thought that, that the way that she should market is that we love your dogs almost as much as you do. The trouble was is that everybody loves dogs. Who doesn't love dogs? <laughs> what her, when I took the time to talk to, I think it was, it's just a sample of eight people and I did something called an obstacle interview. And that's where you talk about what were you doing before you found this? What were the, what was the good stuff? What was the bad stuff? And how did you decide that this was the solution for you? A lot more questions, but that's basically the idea. Yeah. Um, and what I found was that it, she, they love that she loves their dogs and that the other trainers love her, their dogs what they love is that they're with trainers not somebody who has a dog walking license what they love is that their dogs are safe when they let them go with somebody else because in general the service is very expensive um and uh the reason is because of all of the work that goes into working with the dogs you know there's only four dogs per per trip there's not a pack of dogs it's just four um and from learning that, um, that she was able to um, really see where the value of her service was and our copy, her copy switched from being based around what does she do for them 
it, it, it was less about here's what I do. And it was more about that safety and um, the training and how professional they are. Um, so it was less about here's what you get. And it was more about here's how we're going to help you to feel comfortable with giving us your dog. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's all about the safety. It's all about the training. It's all about these things that these people kept reiterating over and over again. And I don't think that they realized that they were doing it. They're like, oh, no, Carrie loves my dogs. It's great. But my dog's well trained now. <laughs> yeah. And I feel really safe giving my dogs to them and, and taking them out. Um, I had another one. They thought that the value of their product was um, that it was really convenient. And it turns out that what was really valuable is the fact that there were only, um, there was a limited number of seats in the room. So they thought, you know, the idea that this networking tool was really convenient was what was selling it. But what was selling it is that there were only so many people in the room, in the digital room at a time. Um, and so you didn't have a, a wall of Zoom faces. It was just four nice. people. With four people, you have good mix that you can try to work with as opposed to a wall of people or one-on-one, -on -one, which could be really weird sometimes. I mean, if you go on a lunch club date, that could be kind of... Have you, ever, have you ever done lunch club before? I've never done lunch club, no. Okay, so lunch club, it used to be in person where they it's like dating for businesses. Um, right. They set you up to meet somebody for lunch to see if you have any, you know, business cohesion or anything like that. Their algorithm does all the work. Well, now they do it online. But the trouble is, is that if you wind up for an hour with somebody who's just like the algorithm got all wrong, <laughs> be a tragic waste of an hour. So... Yeah, it really is based around what does your client say? What does your client want from you? And then you put put that on your website. Like if you're at an Apple market and everybody's selling apples and everybody's screaming at the top of their lungs, I have apples. But what your customers want is um, they want a sweet apple. Then you want to make sure that you say, I have sweet apples or I have crisp apples or I have, you know, really tart brambly apples, whatever it is, whatever you're selling, you have to tell them what, what exactly it is that you're selling and you have to use the language that they use. Mm. The Russian language thing was a real trip too, because <laughs> I had to go through like several translations to get it right. Um, but, but um, yeah, it's, it's using the language that your, that your end user is using and use the word you for goodness sake, oh, get rid of all the weeds. <clears throat> <laughs> always, always about the you. Always about the you. This... Yeah, put we in all over your customer. So <laughs> I love that. There's so many websites that I see that the the website copy just talks about themselves. We do this. We do that. We're qualified in this. We've been doing it for this long. Nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody it's, cares. It's, it's hard to wrap around. I think. I think it's it's hard to remember that human beings are selfish at our core <laughs> when we're trying to solve a problem we want you to solve our problem we don't want to hear about the ways you're going to do it so much as we just want to know that you're going to do it and then once you tell us that you're going to solve our problem then you can tell me about how you're going to do it but first you have to tell me that you know my problem <laughs> then we get to the how don't tell me how before you tell me you understand my problem so how how do you get to the the motivations of uh some say you you work with a business how do you get to the motivations of their 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 clients their customers it's gonna sound wild 
you ask you them. Ask their customers. <laughs> <laughs> Just ask them. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, and really depending on your budget and your time frame, because you can get quality and timeliness. You can, you can choose the three. You can get quality, time, or what is it? Quality, time, or... Um, What's the third one now? It's I feel co like cost, isn't it? Yeah, quality, time, or cost. Thank yeah. you. Um, and you can pick two. <laughs> you don't get to pick three. So um, you can do the the quickest way, but the most expensive way is to do those obstacle interviews. And the obstacle interviews, um, those take about 20 to 30 minutes to do. Um, you do have to, it's better if you incentivize your users. So if you say, hey, I'll give you a free bag of coffee or I'll, you know, do a dog walk for you for free or whatever it is that you offer, give them a freebie um, and ask them to sit down to talk with somebody. Um, it's usually better if it's not with the owner of the company or somebody that they know from the company because honesty is really key here. Um, and then, um, yeah, we go through that and we analyze it, we pull it apart, we, you know, transcribe it, do all of the pulling apart bits to find where the common pieces fit together. Um, if you have time and you have traffic, <laughs> then you can do something called a thank you page survey. Um, thank you page surveys give you really good data as long as you do them correctly. So um, uh, first thank you page survey. So if you have like a freebie on your website, it's like, you know, download this free checklist. Um, once they say yes to that and they give you their email and whatever it else it is, you always have a thank you page that pops up. And a lot of people just throw the thank you page away. They're like, hey, thanks. It'll be in your inbox in five minutes, which is sad. You could, you could, you've still got their attention. So why not ask them a question, which is, hey, you know, thanks for downloading this checklist. It's going to be in your inbox in about five minutes. While I have you, can you just tell me what was going on in your world today? that made you do X, whatever it is that they've done. Um, once they've said yes once, they're more likely to say yes again, as long as you didn't ask them too many questions. So if the freebie is like, give me your email and your name, then you can, then you have room to ask this question. Um, you have to make it so that they can type in the words. You can't just give them a list of reasons because then you're putting words in their mouth. You want their words. Um, so then you'll have a data sheet that has all of those entries. And then once they buy a product, once they get to the end of your funnel and they're in, then you say, great, thanks so much for signing up. We'll have, you know, whatever the next step is. Someone will call you, someone will send you an email, whatever the next step is. Well, I've got you. Just tell me what's the first thing you're gonna do when you use X product. Um, because that's the dream state. So now at the front end, you've got the pain state. What was going on in your world that made you download this checklist for how to buy a, a house in a foreign country? Let's say, because that's where I'm at. Um, <laughs> how to buy a house in a foreign country in three easy steps. Um, um, what, what does that look like? Um, what is the pain that that person is holding? Because it could be that they're trying to buy a home in a foreign country because that's where their parents live. It could be that they're buying the home on behalf of someone else. It could be that they're buying the home for themselves, for a vacation home or retirement home, whatever it is. If you get more people in the pain state, I'm buying for my retirement, like for a retirement home in Spain, then you know who your target market really is. It's not everybody. 
there's people who want to retire and live in Spain. Once you get to the end, then you've got the dream state. What's the first thing you're going to do when you complete the sale of your home? I'm going to sit by the pool with a Mai Tai in my hand. I'm going to, you know, go hiking in the mountains. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And once you can nail it down and everybody wants to sit by a pool with a Mai Tai in their hand, well, then now you know what their dream state is and how you're going to provide that. And that gives you the ability to tell the story of, I know you're in pain, but I can get you to here. And once you know that, then you've got copy. Then you've got a, a landing page for copy. The trouble with thank you page surveys is that you need traffic first before you're going to get this to work. Yeah. And you need at least 100 points of data to really tell the story, to, to, for it to be honest and truthful, as opposed to you filling in the blanks and being like, well, 20 people responded, so I'm just going to make some stuff up. Um, <laughs> it doesn't work. It will fail. Your customers know way more than you do. Don't. Don't turn them down on their ability to, to know what they want and 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 know what their pain is because they they know they know way better than you do. Um, and other options are things um, you can do user surveys on your website so you can set it up so that you can do user testing on it and you can watch where people fail, um, like where what their stumbling blocks are because you can it's you can see on an analytics like on a Google Analytics you can see where people stop scrolling and they bounce. But you might not know why. Like you might think that what you've got is really good and you don't get it. You can implement user testing and then you can ask them. Or they're they talk, really good users will talk their way through it and they'll say, you know, they'll scroll down a web page and I say, the cop, I don't know if I should click on this button or not because I don't know what this button is going to do. Now you know it's the button copy. So it might be that you need to put a little bit of fine print on the bottom. Um, it might be that you need to change what's going on in the copy there, but they'll walk you through it and the feedback is fantastic. You can do guerrilla user testing, which is where you set your laptop up in a coffee shop and you offer to buy random strangers. I'm on it, seriously, random strangers. Buy them a coffee. Ask them to go through your website and talk you through it. That's not very That's British, awesome. that. It's not very British. No, no. So instead... Talking to, to weirdos. No. Yeah, talking to weirdos doesn't work out. But if you go to usertesting.com, hmm. you can assign users. It can get pricey. I'm, I'm not going to say that it's not expensive. Um, uh, but you'll get the answers that you're looking for. Um, and you'll get them fast. It, it doesn't take very long. They'll pop the job up. People will take it. They'll run through. They'll talk you through it. Um, and and you'll, get, you'll get responses. And then you'll know what to do next. But, you know, copy... Copy should be about helping people. It shouldn't be about selling things yeah. Um, yeah. because the copy is really powerful. And you've seen, I mean, I signed up for something that I saw that was super cheesy because I wanted to be taken on their copy journey. And I was like, you know what? For 37 pounds, this is worth it. This looks terrible. I'm going to do it. And the day after I signed up for this thing, I immediately got hit with like six emails trying to upsell me. Then I got two phone calls and then I got a mailer and then I got a text message and I'm just keeping all of it because I need it to show people that while we work on sales copy and while copy is important, copy is powerful and it can turn people off when you hit them over the head with it. And so you need to really just listen to your users any user would tell these people that they have to stop doing this. <laughs> <laughs> it's harassment. I'm being stalked online 
on the phone and through the mail by these people. <laughs> but that's user testing. Like that's that's you know, and as a copywriter, it's important for me to expose myself to really horrible stuff, um, but also really good stuff. So, like, um, I think some of my favorite copy right now is from a company called Dead Happy, and I'm sure that you've seen their ads on um, on Facebook. But um, like they call their life insurance policies uh, death wishes, um, and they right. know exactly who their customer is. Their customer isn't somebody who is in their 50s and older. Their customer is somebody who is younger, who doesn't really understand life insurance, but knows that their parents have been harassing them about getting some. So if they can do this really, really quick thing without thinking about it, they can then tell their parents, I've got life insurance. It's fine. Um, Again, it's it's an okay product for that age group, um, but their copy is really clever. It's really funny. And they know exactly who their target market is. Their target market is somebody who doesn't know anything about insurance, but knows that they should have some. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, those are those are like two really extreme, like terrible and fantastic. Um, <laughs> have you? Have you noticed? Because obviously, as people can tell by your accent, you are American, but you, yes. you're you living in the northeast of the UK, I think. Is that right? I am. I'm in Newcastle. In, in Newcastle. Crikey, that's cold. Have you, <laughs> have you noticed much of a difference in the way companies in the UK and in the US use copy, not just, obviously, the, the spellings and the obvious lack of vowels that America seems to have when it loses vowels from words? I think... I find it interesting. Um, I think that it's the same. It's the same problem, and it's just like you said. People say we instead of you. It's the same problem. It's it's really not that vastly different. Because um, there's bad copy out there, and there's great copy. Um, uh, there's one, and, and and really, it doesn't. It has more to do with how aware the the business owner is of what the sales process is and how that works because most people don't they don't start their business to sell things they start their business because they're really good at making something or doing something they don't start it because they're into sales um and then they realize that oh god <laughs> i'm in sales this is the worst um so if they don't understand the sales process then they're gonna have clunky coffee um, and even if they understand the sales process, they're probably going to have clunky coffee. Um, and it's just because either they haven't put in the, the time to develop it and they don't think it's important, um, or um, they think it's fine, <clears throat> even when their website isn't generating any sales for them at all. They're like, well, I'm just supposed to have a website, right? I don't have to do anything with it. <laughs> Um, it's that whole idea of, well, my website's just an online business card, right? It's like, oh, no, <laughs> it's a 24 hour salesperson. That's what that is. But, you know, just like you have to pay a salesperson, you have to be willing to invest in your website. And I think to a certain extent, to, you know, to your, um, to your point, you know, <clears throat> website design has a huge play in that as well. Usability, um, is excuse me, usability is key to it being a sales process. Um, and, you know, if you're, 
<clears throat> if your product costs a thousand dollars, then your sales funnel is going to be a lot shorter than if you, than if your product costs, you know, 10 bucks, like the, there's a reason that e-commerce sites look the way that they do versus, you know, what, um, the Apple website looks like, you know, <laughs> it's a big investment. <laughs> you have to have a longer sales funnel. You have to really prove and show that, you know, you're the, you're the one to beat. Um, and if you don't have that in your design um, and then your copy lets you down as well, like it's just, it becomes kind of a, a dead weight that, you know, it's kind of like having, it's kind of like having a garbage can in your house and you know, you should take it out, but you haven't taken it out and it just sits there and it's full of paper. And you know, there's something scogy in the bottom of it that your kid threw in there and, and it's just sitting there and you know, you have to do it. That's like me with social media. Like, Everyone has their Achilles heel, mine is social media. Um, I just, I, I just have trouble. <laughs> There's no one who's perfect. Yeah, I've, I've seen on your website, you've got a blog about how uh, blogs are far more important than social media. That, that's driven by your hatred of social media by the look of it. Well, it's also driven by metrics. So mm. uh, if you spend $200 on social media, having someone manage your social media, the return on social media is like the ROI is around 4%. The ROI on email campaign is anywhere from 25 to 47%. So where should you spend your money? Probably not so much, as much as you'd like. Social media is important so that people know that you're not dead, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, but, uh, if you had to choose between what to put your investment into, I would say find an find an SEO expert and invest in them. Get yourself where you need to where you need to be. Um, but then again, it does depend on who your audience is. If your audience is on TikTok, yeah. hammer down like like make TikTok content. If that's where your audience is, if that's where they live go there. I, I, I did um, actually, from, from what you say about um, websites, sometimes people see them as a, a virtual business card or digital business card. I, I did hear somebody many years ago talk about their business saying that they don't sell anything online because their customers don't buy their products online. And I always said at the time, no, no, your customers don't buy your products online. Your competitors' customers buy buy their products online because you're not doing anything with your website. But they were insistent that they didn't buy products online. Are they sold sprinklers? I know that Amazon sells a lot of sprinklers because I just bought one. Amazon do sell a lot of sprinklers. <laughs> yeah. it, it was such a close-minded attitude that they had that because they'd never had anything through their website, they assumed that the websites were irrelevant and their customers did not use the website. And in a way, they were right. Their customers did not use their website. That's the bit they got right. And it was infuriating. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where I think that in marketing, and we all know this, that it's so much easier to work with a customer who knows the value of good marketing than it is to try to convince somebody who doesn't that they should. Um, so what I've found is that when I run into that kind of, but nobody buys this service through this, uh, I have to say, People are buying life insurance without meeting with anybody. They're signing up to have a conversation about wills without having previously met the solicitor. They're buying houses without having walked into the actual house and 
<laughs> they're buying sprinklers off of Amazon. <laughs> yeah. So if you're not going to sell a sprinkler, are you like, what do you do? Do you, is the next step for someone to come out and give an estimate? Then you should sell the estimate. Like, what are you, what are you actually selling? Um, and, and you have to, in order for them to understand their customer, I think that they, again, it always goes back to, have you talked to your customer? Like my website doesn't work. Have you talked to your customers? Mm. Like, do you talk to your customers? What does their feedback say? What, what does your competition look like? What does their website say? Um, uh, what did their customers say about them? Why are they not talking about you? Um, like those kinds of things. Um, I worked on some spa copy um, for a Korean spa in LA. Um, and one of the things that the, the, the woman who, who owned the spa really wanted to do is make sure that she incorporated like she got it. She understood that she needed to, in order to revamp the website and go after a whole different customer, she still needed to use the copy from her old customers. She still had to lock in on that. She just had to be selective about what she was using. So from going to a spa that just offered services that you had to come in and pay for, she wanted to do a day spa. So it had to be an all day long experience. So even then, we had to go to her customers. And I told her that in six months, once um, once she's had enough customers in, you can do the thank you page surveys for your customers when they're walking in your front door. Just ask them, what's the best part about coming in here every time you come in here? You know, if, if you're an in-person service, like you're, apparently your, your sprinkler guy is only in person, um, you can still ask these questions, just keep a log. Like the coolest part about it is that it not only improves your coffee, but it helps you to serve your customer better. If you know that they are, most of your customers are using your sprinklers because they're growing um, uh, greenery inside of their sunroom because their sunroom is leaky in the winter um, and they can't really use it. So they've turned it into a greenhouse. If you know that that's what it is, then you could offer a whole set of services that can help people convert their sunrooms into greenhouses. Like, you, there's a whole market there that you might not have even realized was happening, but you have to ask your customers or you lose an opportunity to grow. Um, and then they'll go somewhere else and buy their sprinklers online because it's way easier. <laughs> yeah, it, it is way easier. It is far easier. Um, yeah. <laughs> Everything you've you've said, it, it's it, it it's it's great to hear that there's other people out there doing this and and asking, just asking the customer what it is that they want, what it is that they value about the service, what it is that they like. We we did exactly that a few years ago. We did a survey of uh, all of our clients, and just like you said, we didn't get either me or, or the other director to do that. We actually got somebody independent to do the survey because it it's just easier talking to somebody who you're not going to offend. Yeah, and we got some surprising results from that because there are things that we thought we were good at, or things that we thought that clients liked, and there were things that they told us that we were good at or weren't as good at. So that gave us opportunities to improve. It is so worth yeah. doing that, even if you're not looking to sign up new clients right now. Right, it's still worth doing that because it'll help you keep the ones that you've already got. People, it all. Unfortunately, it goes back to people being selfish. People are always at like business owners, they're afraid to ask because they don't want to impose. That's a very British thing. It is a very British they thing. They don't want to impose. 
and it's couldn't um, possibly ask couldn't possibly no couldn't possibly couldn't possibly no. they like to be asked people love to tell you about their experiences with your company good or bad that's why amazon reviews are full of hilarity and anger um because people love giving their opinion despite being british even the british people love to give their opinion um i did um I worked for a company that um, writes wills and um, their whole thing was that, well, our, our clients are, they're not, our target market isn't extremely old, but they're not really young. They're kind of in the middle. Like we want the 40, 50 year olds, people who may still have children in the house, but like they're looking to the future as when, you know, those kids are going to move out or they're empty nesters. Like that's our sweet spot. And so instead of talking about things as like a death wish, which is, that's far too young. Um, <laughs> we talked about you know, getting a will as being able to um, think about the fact that you have a life now and what do you want life to be like for your loved ones afterwards? Like, and really focusing on, look, you're living life. Life is great right now. How do you want that to look when you can no longer control it? Not, you're not going to live forever. So you're going <laughs> to have to plan because nobody likes to hear that. But like, hey, what if you could it's almost like you're there. Like you can help them pay for school or help them, you know, do all of these things that you want them to accomplish and you want them to do, but you might not be around. So how do you make sure that that still happens? And so just get it done and get back to living your life. Like you've got things to do. You don't have to, it doesn't have to take forever to do your will, that kind of stuff. And being really, having that kind of conversation really came from talking to their clients who were like, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, that if, if something happened that my kids were going to be okay, or if something happened that my dog wasn't going to go straight to the shelter, um, that there was provision in my will that the dog was to go to this particular person who I've already talked to and it's already done. And, um, and instead of it being like, your will and vast estate needs to be like, <laughs> most people don't have that stuff. Mm. Um, but it was all about talking to their customers. And that's what their customers really said was, I just want to take care of my family when I die. Perfect. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to take care of them. Cause that's By the what, way. Cause that's what's important yeah. to people. Yeah. Cause that's what they care about. So write about that. People who have vast estates, they have solicitors who are going to do that for them. You don't need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they're covered. Um, so yeah, it's, I think that the best part about doing this kind of work, really is the fact that um, you're going to learn something. Um, and I don't know a single entrepreneur or business owner who doesn't want to learn something. Um, but anytime you do this kind of work, you're uncovering all kinds of wants and needs that your customers have that they might be looking to you to provide and that you could easily do and charge them for it. Mm. And they would happily pay it. And that's additional income for you. So you know, investing a little bit of time in your copy and in understanding your client can pay dividends once you actually do the work and get the result. Um, so yeah, I, I firmly believe in, in, in user-based copy and all that good stuff. Fantastic. It's, it's, creative copy is great. We're not me. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm data, I'm data-based. <laughs> And and on, on on that on that note as well then um, as 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 a final point uh, yeah. if if somebody wants to work with you based on you know what you've said today yeah. and how you've talked about how you work what's the best way for people to get into contact with you 
Um, the best way to get in contact with me is through my email. Um, and I do apologize that my parents named me the way that they did. Um, my name is Danica Stahovsky, but I've made my company name Danica S because <laughs> it's just shorter. <laughs> so um, my email address is Danica at Danica S copywriting.com. And that's D-A-N-I-K-A at D-A-N-I-K-A-E-S-S-C-O-P-Y-W-R-I-T-I-N-G.com. You can also find my website at DanicaSCopywriting.com. But but don't follow you on social media. Is, is that the answer as well? Well, you can follow me on social media, but uh, friends... <laughs> It's it's a, everyone's got their failing and, and social media is my Achilles heel. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. But um, uh, if you get a hold of me through my website, uh, you'll be able to see more of kind of the work that I do um, and you'll get a better idea. Um, but LinkedIn works. Um, Facebook is kind of a dead zone because I like working with business owners, mm. not necessarily just people who love cat videos. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate it and I've had a lot of fun talking to you. So thank you. Thanks, Darren.